Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome back to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. And we're here to talk about The Crow, starring Brandon Lee, Rochelle Davis, Ernie Hudson, Bai Ling, Michael Massey, Tony Todd, David Patrick Kelly, and Michael Wincott. Directed by Alex Proyas, based on the comic series by James O'Barr, released in 1994 in a budget of $23 million, grossed over $50 million at the box office. I even read a, another figure that had it up at around like 94 when you added in overseas, finally, and all the home video stuff. But no matter what bonafide hit and a cult classic brian you've been wanting to talk about the crow for a long time i mean maybe since we started this podcast so what got you hooked on this i would say that this was my number one movie that i've always wanted to do and in the how many years did we do continuous play that we never touched it (laughs) almost almost 10 yeah (laughs) um i i mean what got me into this i i saw the movie is the is the general um when it first came out i didn't see it in the theaters but i did get it on vhs when it first well yeah vhs when it first came out and um i really liked it so this was back in the days of actually going to a movie rental place and being able to pick up movie rentals. And this is one that I picked up. And in, in, in those days, if you were like a Hollywood video subscriber, remember those places, um, the, you could keep a movie for five days at a time. Yeah, I remember. So, that. I mean, yep, I would I sat and watched this over and over again. There are s- just a handful of movies that I liked so much that I would literally watch them two, three times a day for a week straight. This is one of them. And why? I, I, I don't know if I can really answer why it was that I really liked this movie, but I just love the imagery of this movie. I love the music in the movie. And I just I got with the story and, and really enjoyed it. And it became literally my favorite movie ever. And still to this day, I would say this and The Big Lebowski are my two favorite movies ever. And so I just I really like it. Yeah, and I think you've been after me to do Big Lebowski about as, about as long as uh, as you wanted to do The Crow. So yes, uh, you know the the interesting thing is uh, I had never seen this up until I don't know three or four years ago because we were kicking around stuff to do and we were thinking about doing this one and then I I don't remember what got in the way or what changed the schedule but we ended up not doing it but I watched it at that time. Uh, because I think it's, it was still on Netflix. I think it was on Netflix. And I just, I watched it and I thought, eh, I'll give this a shot. And I remember going like, oh, okay. I kind of see what Brian digs about that. And like, I all, immediately forgot it. You know, like I knew, I knew about The Crow when it came out, but in 1994, man, honestly, like if it wasn't some part of the horror franchise that I was really into, which was Halloween or something. I wasn't watching movies in 1994. I was all about music, man. I was playing music. I was writing music. I was in the music in a big way. Uh, and I think at that point I was, uh, this is going to make you laugh. I wasn't into like alternative grunge rock or rock music. The only rock music I listened to in a matter of fact was either classic rock, um, which is like from the sixties or seventies and like the eighties hair metal stuff that I, 
I was big into country music in 1994, man. Like I was writing stuff. Mm. I, I had written and recorded my first little album. I did that at home. Like I was, I was so big into music that like movies just didn't click for me. And people talked about this all the time. And then I remember one of my favorite wrestlers showed up a couple years later wearing what people called the crow get up. And I thought, well, what, what is that all about? And of course I'm talking about sting. And that became, I, I mean, as famous as anything else he ever did. I mean, we could talk about that in a minute, but I also remember the story about this and I'm not going to, you know, everybody knows, you know, Brandon Lee died, you know, making this movie. We're not going to talk a lot about that. I mean, it's, it's part of the story, but there's tons of podcasts and stuff on it. You want to read about it. It's a tragedy, but it's long since gone. And, and I really just want to focus on the movie tonight, but that's really all I knew about the crow. Honestly, was yeah. people talking about it? Stings makeup, and th- that was it for Sting's years. Makeup. <laughs> yeah, I mean, re- or Sting, Sting doing the crow makeup, I guess I should say, which he's yeah. doing the, you know, I guess the Greek tragedy mask or, or what, or, or comedy mask or whatever. But I, I didn't know anything about this one until you know a few years ago. So this was one that I had missed, honestly. And I, it, it's, it was fun to go back to then, and then this one, you know, I, I watched it for this review, and really looking forward to talking about it because, like you said, this is a big one for you. It's something you've really wanted to do for a long time, and. It's something I certainly had a lot of thoughts about when I saw it the first time and certainly have some big ones now. Yeah. I mean, you you talk about you, you were into country music and all that stuff. And I was a big hair metal and heavy metal hard rock guy. And when grunge kind of came around, I was upset, like really upset for a long time. Yeah, same. <laughs> and about, yeah, about 1992. Three, I would say, you know, I was still, you know, following the spaghetti incident from Guns N' Roses, things like that. That's about the time when I started to turn the corner and just go with it because it was really all I had around. The stations had all turned away from my kind of music and they were all going to that alternative rock grunge format. And that's right around the time, I'd say 93 or so, that I started to finally just give in and, and listen to that music. And now it's some of my favorite music that I listen to over and over again today. But it took me a while to turn it. And then this, this of course, took the two worlds that I really enjoyed, the heavy metal, you got Pantera on the soundtrack, and that grunge, and kind of fused them together in a really good soundtrack. And we can talk about the soundtrack later because it's amazing. But yeah, that... I think it played a large part in my enjoyment of this movie as well. Oh, and I can see why, dude. I mean, I, just listening to this, I mean, I was I was watching this movie, and my wife asked me what I was doing, and I told her, and she was like, oh, yeah, I like that. And she said, I really dig the soundtrack. My wife is not one to pay attention to that usually. Uh, but I thought, okay, that's interesting. And I remember texting you in the middle of it, like, this is a 90s alt-rock grunge tour de force. I mean, this mm-hmm. this is industrial. It's got, you know, there's like some nine-inch nail sound in and all this other stuff. And I remember my friends that were into that and trying to get me into it. And again, I just went the other way and i mean you know i was it was part of the 90s country boom so it was you know clint black and alan jackson and garth brooks and all those guys and i just hooked into the songwriting part of that but years later i came around to the grunge stuff and and honestly like listening to this now i'm like man i gotta i gotta buy the soundtrack uh, because regardless of what i think about the movie the soundtrack is slamming on this thing and uh, we can talk more about that like you say getting into it but um you know again i was sort of oblivious to uh, the crow, other than the impact it had in pop culture, and I, I do want to kind of kick to you for a second about the Sting wrestler uh, part of this because I, we won't really get to talk about it again. So once you get into the movie, there's tons to talk about. But what do you know the story of why he decided to go from the bleach blonde surfer kind of ultimate warrior bright face paint thing to this black and white, you know, mm-hmm. macabre mm-hmm. thing? 
Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting story, not to sidetrack here, but, you know, he was changing the, – the whole thing was in the WCW, you had the outsiders, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash coming in. Hulk Hogan had turned his back on the WCW and become a bad guy, right? That was the big deal back then. Sting was the top face other than Hulk Hogan in that company. So now he, by de facto, is the top face. Well, he was dealing with injuries and everything else, so he had to stay off screen for a while. And they decided to come up with a, a mysterious type – character for him to play to kind of tease that he may be nwo or he may be wcw and scott hall is actually the person who had told him said hey you know there's this crow movie out there that's really over with all the all the people who watch our show you should uh maybe paint your face like that and get away from the all the colors and everything else and so you got to credit scott hall with coming up with the idea to kind of make the crow look for Sting going forward. And he kind of played with it a little bit at the beginning and then finally settled on the look that he ended up with, which is, uh, it's different than the crow, but it's based on the crow look. Yeah. It's very, very similar. I think the, the teardrops are longer and, and all that kind of stuff, but uh, that's cool. I didn't know Scott Hall was involved with that. Well, I mean, again, th- this movie permeated the pop culture. I mean, it had three or four sequels. There was a television show. Uh, and uh, the funny thing though, honest truth, I did not know this was based on some kind of comic book thing at all oh yeah um i had no idea um i and and, honestly i don't think many people did i don't think many people knew that this comic book even existed even after the movie came out it wasn't for a while afterwards that people kind of heard about the comic book and then of course it became one of those sought after comic books it it had a cult following and then when it got made into a movie of course it just exploded like anything else and look this is 1994 we're only five years removed from batman 1989 which started this comic book television renaissance in hollywood like they were making everything every studio in the world uh of course miramax was going to get in on that and you know i i think it's funny that we we come back from film strip you know after a over a year's hiatus right and the biggest comic book movie of all freaking time is in theaters and we choose to talk about one from 1994 that is the most film strip thing ever uh but you know but but it was but it was part of that though and this one I'm, i'm i'm bringing that up for a point is now we think of comic book movies as these $400 million franchises, right? They're these huge things. Even like the smaller ones, quote unquote, are $100 million movies and they make four and $500 million. Back in these days, man, you'd put maybe, you know, 10, 20, they, you know, they put $20 million into the thing and you see what it makes, right? And it was also early days of computer graphics and all of that. I mean, you know, Jurassic Park was around and so we were starting to get a much different set of filmmaking tools. And I think that lends itself to something that is supernatural like this and also has a lot of action. So, I mean, this is, I mean, I don't know much about the comics. I've never read any of it, but the crow comes off. as kind of a cross between the Punisher and like spawn and some just, you know, dark stuff. It's definitely the darker side of comics. Like Captain America is not going to come rolling through the scene anytime soon for the crow. Yeah, no, definitely a dark, dark comic, and it's very dark material. You're talking about revenge and death, and a lot of death, and so yeah. I mean, you know yeah. you've got you've got assault, you've got you know vigilante, oh yeah, all all this other stuff going on. I mean, but it was it was the '90s too, right? And the '90s grunge era, you know, music a lot of times does reflect what's going on in the world, and we weren't at war per se, but we were at war culturally in this country in a big way and things were changing and you know, the economy was going down and people were finding a voice that they'd never had before. And I don't know, there was just a lot of 
pent up aggression out there. And so I, I can see why this would relate to disaffected youth and, or, or even just Absolutely. people that, that sort of, sort of felt, you know, I mean, you and I are white middle class suburban dudes, right? You know, but it, we could even relate to some of this kind of stuff. And I could see how this thing found an audience. I mean, for sure. Not to mention the fact that you got Bruce Lee's son. Who, you know, the story, of course, he dies mysteriously making a movie. That sounds eerily familiar for that family, right? So you've got mm-hmm. all of that going on. And sometimes the, something like that could kill a movie. It, in this case, it helped this one. And then the fact that the movie actually had something to say, and we'll get into that in a minute, I think propelled this to being even a bigger phenomenon than maybe what they thought it was going to be. But I mean, this was a big deal for him to get this movie at this time. Cause he had done like one action movie and a couple of little small things. So getting Brandon Lee as the lead in this flick was a big deal. It was a big deal for him. I mean, for sure. He, like you said, he had next to no experience um, in, in movies it, it, and then not starring for sure. So this was a huge break for him, and it was supposed to launch his career, and unfortunately, it killed him. Um, it yeah. did launch his career, but he was dead. He couldn't take advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, sadly, it was, it, but, very sadly, yeah. kind of like his dad, you know, right as it was about to take off in America, Bruce Lee was dead, you know, and yeah. so, uh, yeah, and th- that's enough about that. But I mean, really, this this was a this is a time when I mean, it's hard to think about the last movie you've seen that took really a nobody or maybe somebody that had a name, but they hadn't done anything yet and just made them, you know? And I think the nineties was just littered with that. And it's one thing I miss now is it's hard to find those movies these days. I mean, they probably have it on things like Netflix and prime and Hulu originals and stuff like that. They, they rarely make the theaters anymore um, because the theaters are all like franchises and, and stuff now. But in the nineties, man, nineties movies, they had a certain sheen and look to them. They had a soundtrack that went with them. I mean, we did the scream movies with, with Ron a few years ago and we talked about this and, and they also made young stars, you know, all those people that in that, like in that movie, they've been on TV, but they weren't movie stars. And back then it was, it was different to be a TV star than a movie star. Nowadays, it's, they're really one of the same. Sometimes it's even better to be a TV star or at least it's more steady work. But then the nineties, man, you get a young person, you put them in a big you know movie, it's a smash. And the next thing you know, poof, Jed's a millionaire, you know, and they got a lot going on. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean we could we could just pick names of movies oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and talk about that. I mean it's crazy, but yeah, you know this is this was. Um, I think this came out at the exact right time. Like you were saying there's a lot of anger in music. There's a lot of anger in the teenage groups in our in our groups as we were growing up. It was all over the place, and uh, this was a movie that we could all rally behind. I think, and I think a lot of us did. Absolutely. And I, you know, I guess that's enough preamble, Brian. Why don't you tell folks the, the plot summary? And we did the spoiler warning in the opening credits, but if you skip by those spoilers, we do spoilers here on, on film strip. And also this movie is 25 years old. So if you're like me, you seen it up <laughs> until this point, you're about to have it killed. So go watch it on Netflix. It's an hour and 40 minutes at the comeback. Uh, if you don't want to spoil, but Brian, tell people a plot summary and then we can get into talking about it. All right. One year after Eric Draven and his, his fiancée, Shelley, are murdered, Draven, watched over by a hypnotic crow, returns from the grave to exact revenge on Top Dollar and his gang of thugs, which include T-Bird, Tintin, Funboy, and Skank. That's right, Skank. One by one, Draven goes after each member of the gang in brutal fashion, setting up for the final showdown with Top Dollar. Meanwhile, Draven visits Sarah, a girl he and his fiancée, Shelly, watched over because her mother, Darla, is a prostitute drug addict. 
With the help of Sergeant Albrecht and Sarah, Draven gets his revenge on Top Dollar and returns to his grave. He is finally able to rest in peace with Shelley as the movie comes to an end. So that's a short but sweet plot summary, and it really covers the, I think, uh, whole reason and events of this movie without getting into too much detail. Brian, I think that's a good, succinct plot summary, and I mean, it tells the thing, and I think that's that's one of the neat things I noticed immediately about this movie is that, honestly, for all the intricacies, and I do have a lot of questions, and I want to know more, and hopefully you can enlighten me on some of this. It's actually a pretty simple story. It's just a good revenge story mixed in with a little hocus pocus and dark lighting and again, industrial rock. I mean, it, it's, and I, I'm not dinging it for that. I mean, I, some of the best movies, the simplicity is what makes them great. You know, think about well, yeah. ha- Halloween. It's a really friggin' simple movie, you know, and hey, much to even a movie like Jaws, there's a lot going on in that movie, but it's really about a shark terrorizing people in a community. And what are they going to do about it? it? The simplest thing is usually the best. Not everything has to be, you know, this Dostoevsky, you know, <laughs> huge, uh, epic you know uh, and i like that about it and that's the thing is you know having only seen this once before coming back to it this the opening scene and this idea of use of flashback as a narrative device where we are thrown in the story we don't get draven's backstory we don't get anything we see the crime scene where you've got great ernie hudson great character actor ernie hudson forever a ghostbuster in my book uh yes. playing playing albrecht you know there to to investigate a murder and what we see in real quick cuts and flashbacks is this woman who's getting brutalized by these people. And this guy who takes a header out of a, Oh, the thing is like, they live in like this weird loft. That's like, is it the top of a church? I don't know what's going on. That's I had like so many questions. I'm like, are they like Satan worshipers or like, what's going on here? Like this has lots of weird imagery and darkness and lightning and, thunderous claps and rain. I mean, that's one thing. This movie is so dark uh, and it takes a skilled filmmaker to make a movie in the dark and not make it look stupid and cheap. You know, like that usually darkness is because we're trying to hide something. In this case, Proyas, from what I understand, wanted to shoot the whole thing in black and white. The studio told him no, but you mm-hmm. could, and the movie would almost work. It would have worked. Yep. It would have worked, I think. Uh, the, the, they're living in a very bad area of a town. I don't know. It's Detroit. Know it, it, this... it, it is Detroit. Yeah. yeah so. so they're in a, just a really bad crime-ridden area. Uh, why they're living there, we don't really ever know. I mean, he's a musician. Maybe that's why. But either way, they're in a very bad part of town, and they're in a – uh, top dollar is a landlord, I guess you can say, uh, basically runs a crime family and they live in one of his apartment areas. So where it is, I'm not exactly sure they ever really say it. It's not a church for sure, but it's in a very old building, rundown building, and uh, it's run and owned by Top Dollar and his gang of thugs. Well, and the way I understood all of it is that Top Dollar, who's played by Michael Wincott, is amazing in this movie. And he was in like Alien Resurrection. He's he's got this really deep voice. If you he, he's wearing a terrible wig in this movie, but if you when you hear him, folks, you know who I'm talking about. This guy's from he's all over the '90s. Uh, I mean, just an amazing actor. Uh, but what I took it was it was he was. I mean, he was a crime guy for sure, but he had like legitimate business too. And one of his schemes was to burn down old buildings and run off people 
well, he would mm-hmm. run people off to try to gentrify the neighborhood, basically, so that he could take over and well, build up something else. But if he couldn't get rid of them, he would have T-Bird and the other thugs burn the place to the ground and kill it for a potty. I think it's an insurance scam, to be honest with you. He owns a lot of the buildings in town and rents to them all, and he lights them up on Devil's Night, and there you get your money, right? How else are you going to make money by lighting places on fire? Well, this is true. Yeah, There's, you're, a, there's you're right. a line he drops in there. Yeah. We're going to burn some places and make a lot of money tonight, right? Right. That's an insurance scam to me. So I think that's his whole thing. And he, he – inst- it's collateral damage, right? When he gets the, the gang involved, it's collateral damage, whatever. But he tries to evict everybody. And then the ones who don't get don't go along with the eviction, they're the collateral damage. Right. And and what we'll say is, and this is revealed throughout the movie, and I mean up until the very end you get pieces of this, so we'll just tell it now. The reason Shelley and Draven get targeted, it's really Shelley that's the target. She is like some sort of community activist for like the rents too damn high and, and wants to, you know, stop these uh shady evictions and stuff like that. So they they send the gang over there not knowing she's home. Like they're just going in to kind of trash the place and scare her maybe to to back off. But when she's there, of course these psychos take it way too far and they they assault mm-hmm. her and they're getting ready to kill her and Draven shows up and of course he's like what you know what the hell and then that's when everything goes south and they they end up stabbing I think they shoot him in the back twice and throw him out a window and it's it's uh, it's brutality but she that was not the plan of top dollar was go kill those people it was more of a no. mm-hmm. go go scare them. go scare that woman so she'll stop this harassment and we can keep up our shady business dealings and the fact that she was there is just you know oh well that's this is what happens when you employ psychos you know but, but yeah and they're not the brightest bunch ever at yes, all we'll do, get do you, into <laughs> yeah do you know any of these people like i know one of the no. people in the gang okay david patrick kelly has been in probably his most famous thing which is in a movie called the warriors which is about street gangs in new york city i highly recommend that movie uh, to go watch it it's it's really cool it's definitely of its time so it's not uh more modern aesthetic, but it's very cool. He was also a, a bit player in a really cheesy, but totally enjoyable Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie called Commando. Um, and that's, a, he's Sully. So if you've seen that, you, you know that movie. Um, but he's, he's just a great character actor. He's always got just these wild eyes and faces. And I don't know any of these other people in the gang, like at all from anything, but they come off like just the rogues gallery of, you know, henchmen. Uh, and they're, and they're all insane in one way or another. Like he's the only one that's like remotely in this reality. And even he's a little weird, you know, with the whole burn it down, burn it down, which I'm like, well, now I know where that got ripped off, you know, 25 years later too. But, but they, I mean, they do all kinds of stuff, but he, that guy, T-Bird is very fun in this movie and a, in a very bad role and, and a guy who's just evil, but I really dug him and I know him from other things. Well, and that's why T-Bird is the leader of the group too. I mean, he's the one that is the most sane of all, all the guys. So he's the leader of the group, but yeah, no, I, I don't think I've seen really any of these 
actors, even even the one the top dollar, Michael Wincott. I don't know that I recognize him from anything that I've seen personally. The the only one in here that I knew before this movie would have been, of course, Ernie Hudson, and that's it. Right. I didn't know Bileen. I think by I think this is one of Bileen's first. It's one of her very first American films. films. Yeah, yeah, she she had done Chinese work. You're right, and but uh, this was one of her first big American films. Of course, she's had a long and storied career. She's still working uh, to this day, uh, but. No, but the thing is, that, like, I, I want to go back to Shelley and Draven here real quick because, again, this unfolds throughout the story. We learn a little bit more about them, but we really don't know a ton about them. So he's a musician, and uh, he's famous enough that the band has a vinyl record. All right, so there's that. Well, but, remember, yeah. they weren't that hard to get back in the day. <laughs> yeah, they weren't. They weren't. But they, like, have an album. So I get, like, he's sort of local music about to break on the scene or something like that. I don't really know. Cause we never like see them playing or anything. Uh, I think we're here, like what's supposed to be the remnants of his band with like another singer later, but we'll, we'll get to that. But anyway, so there's that. And then she's again, you know, community activist, they're in love and Brian, they're going to get married on freaking Halloween. All right. Now, yeah. that, I mean, and there's even a joke in the movie about who does that. Nobody. <laughs> and I'm like, well then why? And like, I needed something. Cause there's some, there's this bit of like, I don't know, uh, cultish poetry that keeps getting read. Like a T-bird reads it and he tells the woman, like, that's a, you know, that's awful or that's an abomination. And then uh, he says it back later when Traven kills him. And it's just this, I don't know, it's a weird set of lines, but I, I wanted to ask you, like, what are, what are they supposed to be? Are they like the goth kids in love or something? Is that what that's supposed to be? It's very Tim Burtonish. Yeah, I don't think we're supposed to read anything really that deep into it. I just think that they're a couple in love living in Detroit. He's a musician. She's an activist. And they like that kind of stuff. They like macabre things maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think that would play well into his outfit and everything else. But they never really play that out. And based on the cover of the record and the song that is on can't rain all the time. I don't think that they're really any metal or gothic anything. Okay, they're just a typical grunge type band. I guess, I guess so. I, I don't know. It was just it was very strange because like we see their engagement later, and it's like all these yep. candles around, and he's got this little ring for her, and. You know, whatnot. I mean, it's, again, I'm reading a lot into it because that's what we're supposed to sit here and do is is pick the stuff apart. And I had questions about it. I was like, so what, like, are they sort of making a joke about it? Because they play that off as a joke in the movie. Like, who gets married on Halloween? Nobody. Uh, You know, and I'm like, well, is that supposed to be like a stick at the culture? Like, yeah, you're, you're dark. I mean, you know, South Park has had a lot of fun with the goth kids through the years, you know, and especially when the Twilight vampire thing was a big deal and the, every, these kids started dressing up like vampires and the goth kids are like, Oh, these freaking kids are driving me nuts. And so I always felt like, I feel like the producers here and the makers are like, yeah, it's really just part of the scene. These are just two kids in love. It's the way I took it. And I kind of like that because the funny thing about Brandon Lee is in the scenes when he's not trying to be, you know, ultra, bad a guy or whatever and and being the crow or whatever he's kind of goofy i mean it's sort of funny like he's yeah. having a good laugh he, like he plays all of his lines off as, as comedy and that's the one thing about bruce lee movies that people don't remember they remember all the martial arts and action but bruce lee thought he liked being funny 
you know, he, you know, he wanted to be funny and I, I kind of get that here and I, I appreciated that. And I sort of take all of this as kind of a gentle rib to like, yeah, we dress up and do all that, but really we're just two kids in love in Detroit. That's all I took it as as well, and maybe Halloween was the day that they could get to get married, and so <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's who knows? The church was available when it wasn't burning <laughs> well, down or something, right? <laughs> who knows? I mean, I've had friends I don't get think married it's ever really on. I mean, I have friends that got married on Christmas and New Year's, and you know, Star Wars Day, and all kinds of other stuff. So whatever, you know, whatever you float your boat. It's just I just found it funny that they they go out of their way to explain that and keep bringing it up, and then they pick it up as a joke. But as as they're leaving for. You know, the hospital and all this stuff. What I love is we get this little girl, Sarah, roll up. And I, I gotta say, I really enjoyed this kid. Like, kids in scary movies or movies in general can be a mixed bag sometimes. And Rochelle Davis does a good job. And matter of fact, this is one of the few things she ever did. Like, she didn't go on to have a long career, but I liked her as Sarah, sort of this street kid that these two other, basically just a little bit older kids were taking care of because her mom's a, you know, crack hoe or whatever. And, mm-hmm. I, but what I, what I also love is that the, the 90 sensibilities that the cops will just tell anybody anything. You know, she shows up like she's, <laughs> is she going to make it? Maybe. I don't know. Probably not. You know, and I'm like, but yeah, we, I, we live in the post 9 11 world where you can't get near a crime scene at all. You know, but yeah, back in the 90s, you could just walk through like, oh, I know them, whatever. Well, you know, <laughs> you know? it is Detroit and there's a lot of crime going on. So how are you going to keep people away like that, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think Robo, RoboCop had been retired possible. at that point. So, yeah, you're right. So. <laughs> it's no different than if you happen upon a scene and you recognize the person, you'd probably go in there, too. They they probably would stop you. But in this case, there's a whole lot going on. <laughs> so you may be able to get through at that point. The other thing, too, and I mean, this movie is, is big on just sort of shadowing and barely telling some of the story like Albrecht here is in uniform but there's another detective on the scene who's berating him and going like that's why you're no longer a detective and we never really get well, that story but no, I like but I like that I kind of like the fact that it's sort of underneath the surface and he's the detective on the case when it first happens, right? He right. is the detective there. And then a year later, he's no longer the detective. Probably, likely, because he was never able to solve the case. And they put someone else on it, this, I, this really, like, dickish Dennis Leary <laughs> wannabe. Oh, that guy, by the way, is is the opening bad guy in the Stallone movie Cobra. Uh, so go, go back and enjoy his uh, his wonderful scene in a grocery store with Stallone, uh, where he is the disease mm. and uh, Stallone is the cure. Uh, but, I mean, no, I've seen this guy in a lot of stuff, another character actor. But I like the fact that Ernie Hudson is kind of a screw-up. Or is blamed for stuff. And I, I'll tell you how I read that. It's not spelled out in the movie. But I feel like like that cop that's giving him all that hard time is probably dirty. There's just got to be dirty cops involved in this whole situation. Because you get, don't run a criminal enterprise without having you know a lot of people on the take. right? And so I, I read it as like, that detective is probably dirty. You know, and everybody, everybody knows it and they can't really prove it. And, eh, you know, it's, I mean, again, we were talking about the early nineties. This is when we started to totally distrust everything. And, you know, every, it was always anybody in high level authority was not to be, you know, trusted. And that's not a new thing. That's just the, our youth culture. And when we were coming up and when we were that age, that, that was the, the message, you know, it's still the message today in a lot of ways. And for people a lot younger than me, 
But I, I read it as that. It's like, that cop's probably dirty, and he screwed Ernie Hudson so he could get ahead and make sure that he's stuck away. Because you see Ernie Hudson, like, later on has other cop friends that, like, feed him information, but they're like, you better not tell nobody, you know, because people will find out. And I'm like, ah, so the department's dirty, too. Well, of course it is. It's Detroit. But, yeah, no, oh, sorry, I mean. Sorry, Roger, if you're listening <laughs> to this. Our friend Roger from Sports Radio I Detroit. Just, I kid, I kid. Yeah, Not you're really, one but, of those Vikings uh, fans. That's what it is. That's no, it. It, exactly. <laughs> Screw the Lions. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's you you raise a question or a, a point that I never really thought of. And that would make a lot of sense that you have some dirty detectives on the scene. And he always shows up late, if you noticed, to the scene. So maybe he's tipped off knowing something's going to happen and then just always comes late so that he doesn't witness anything. Right. Could be. Who knows? But he's always late. He's always in a bad mood. He's never really solving anything. I mean, Ernie Hudson solves pretty much everything in this movie or is at least at the scene when things happen. Uh, but well, that's I, a good point. I bet you he is a shady detective. I mean, I could see that too. It could also, it, it could also just be that central government is so ineffectual and so bureaucratic that they can't get anything together, you know, to help anybody. So it takes, you know, vigilante crows and supernatural abilities to. Well, I think that the, the, the big line that comes out of this movie is top dollar saying, there's not anything that happens in this town that I don't know about first. Right. Exactly. So he runs everything. Right. Right. He, he owns the cops. He owns everything else. So I think your, your, your look at that, Detective is probably spot on. Knowing that this has comic book origins and knowing movie studios at the time, the premise of the original Batman was that Grissom and Jack Nicholson's Joker were the crime bosses and they had the cops in on it, but not all the cops, but some of the cops. You know, there's that Lieutenant Deckard that's in on the raid and all that stuff. So I kind of just took it as like, well, we, we need to have these beats again. I mean, movies when they find, movie studios when they find something that works, just repeat the beats. I mean, they, it's, it's no different than music, you know, right? If, the, if somebody comes out and they do a certain style of thing, there's 30 more bands like them in the next two years, right? Why? Because it works, you know, the formula. And so I just took it as, it's two things. One, that cop's probably dirty, but that also kind of still fits in some of that motif. We're still doing some of that same stuff, you know, and uh, I understand the comic book series is quite different than, than what we're seeing here on the, on the, the screen, which is fine. Right. But I'm, I'm just saying, I, I think they may be borrowing from some of that from other comic book movies that are out there, but never mind. The, the point being is we get all that in the first few minutes. I mean, it is a, Boom. We don't even get the exposition dump. I mean, it's just images and a few words and we got to kind of figure it out. And then we get what I will call like the crow with the beak of steel that lands on that, <laughs> that tombstone and starts pecking away at it. And I, man, like the special effect of that grave flying open and Brandon Lee coming from it. I, I, I know I'm not supposed to, but I chuckled, man. I was like, oh, God, that of all the cool effects in this, that one looked did not hold up, did not hold up for me. Yeah, I don't understand the whole point of the crow pecking at the gravestone and having it actually chip while he did it because it right. had no bearing on what happened. <laughs> also, in, coming out of the grave <laughs> in subsequent shots, it is not damaged anymore. So they don't even maintain the continuity. So the, again, I don't know what the part of yeah. that was. I think, well, I'll tell you either. though, I'll tell you though, there is a scene later. Obadling gets it from the beak of doom later. So maybe it's to set up that that can do that, but a regular bird could just do that to you. So, I would assume <laughs> that if a crow was really right. pissed at you, it could probably get your eyeballs out. Exactly. Right. Like so I, I didn't so need I'm the not, crow to break yeah. lime 
gemstone to show me that it was no. supernatural. I just took and, it and, for that. Yeah, like you said, the, he starts pecking at it, and you see pieces flying up of debris from the thing, but then nothing ever happens. And it plays nothing into the fact that Eric Draven's coming up. So other than to set up the point that this is the grave he's chosen to resurrect, I don't know what the point of that was, to be honest. But – you're right, uh, Eric Draven coming out of the grave is probably one of the worst special effects in the movie. It just looked terrible because they took the grass up as a whole chunk <laughs> with the, with the ca- casket opening and opening the wrong way. Right, yeah, like it so, opens in half. It's, weird. And it's like a trap door or something. It's, yes. it's what I would expect to see at like your neighborhood – uh, county fair haunted house kind of thing. Like it's very and cheap. honestly, the casket is six feet underground. Unless they can't dig that deep in Detroit, I don't know. <laughs> but there's no but reason they, they can't. Would never break it yeah. up. Yeah, it would never yeah, work. So yeah. I, I, prefer, I prefer the Buffy the Vampire Slayer version where she has to dig her way out. Right. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe we should have had the crow do that. You know, something like that. Like, I could see, like, you know, it rains in this movie for all the friggin' time anyway. Why not have it rain mm-hmm. and just wet come out of the ground? I don't know. They they wanted to have this explosive. And I, maybe it's just a part of the times, too. Like, we're, we're looking at this in 2019. In 1994, yeah, I'm sure true. people were like, ooh, you know, by that. But now, we, how many, how many times did what? we see that on Buffy? Jeepers, you know? So. <laughs> right. And let's talk about this, too, though. Aside from the getting out of the grave, I loved how they played the effects of all of a sudden being resurrected, like completely out of sorts, cold, uh, not knowing where he is, what to do, how to walk, having to, to kind of stumble around because your body has been basically dormant and dead for over a year or a year, I guess. And I really thought that was done really well. What did you yeah. think about the whole oh. scene where he's reorienting himself? I love that. And there's a little detail in there, too, that is I'm, – I'm sad that I know this. But when they bury you, they, they just sort of drape the clothes over you. His shirt is ripped straight down the middle in the back, and he sort of pulls it off of the front of him or whatever. And that's mm-hmm. just how they bury you because – why, why go through all the other trouble? You know, I mean, it's not, it's just the front that you're, you're going to see in the casket. And I, sure. that's a, that's a little thing. It's just a weird thing, but it's a nice little level of detail that basically his clothes are shredded when he comes off of, his pants should have been too, but obviously they couldn't do that because this movie's rated R anyway. So they're not going to make it any you know, worse. And maybe he didn't want to do that <laughs> uh, at, at this point. And in 1984, we didn't really do that kind of thing. Uh, not, not in this kind of movie. Like if anything, Shelley would have been you know, naked or something, but we didn't get any of that. I think probably because there's so much violence in language, in this movie that the MPAA would have just had a, Freaking heart attack if they had done some to go with it. Because uh, this was 1994. And they they were, tried. I they, mean, they came yeah, close. I mean, yeah. They did have some nudity actually in this. They, they the, the dead girl in Top Dollar's yeah, uh, bed. Yeah. There's and, one. And, and Biling in the shower. There, but... and, and Biling in the shower. Yep. We could see her back. You're right. So maybe that they had that so they knew they couldn't do anything else. But male nudity in a movie was very rare in 1994. We just didn't do that. It was but, rare until uh, Bruce Willis in Color of Night. R- oh, man. You know what? Put that on the uh, stay tuned list or whatever we're going to call it because I got <laughs> thoughts about that garbage. But anyway, oh, yeah. um, yikes. Um, 
Anyway, there's a good scream joke about that too. Um, but back to Draven, I love the disorientation because you're right. It's how many times like this, this, uh, you're, you're reincarnated or whatever and boom, you're just right back into it. I love that they bother right. to take time that this guy, he's been dead a year. So you reconstitute his soul along with a little extra mojo or whatever back into this body. He's got to loosen it back up, but also he's got to figure out wh- where am I? Like, what am I doing? Because yep. it's not like the crow goes, now, you kill out, everybody. Right. Like, it doesn't right. do that. You have to figure out what's going on. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't I mean, have he, any idea. And, yeah. He has no clue why he's back, where he is, how he's going. He gets to his apartment, which I think is cool, and things are starting to come back to him. He sees his cat, which, by God, what a cat. It's alive a year, <laughs> cat, a, a cats year later. Cats are resourceful, man. They're scary animals. Well, yeah. No, it's true. <laughs> and the cat's still there. The 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 apartment that they're in has been blocked off as a police crime scene, right? Case isn't solved, so it's still a crime scene. Nobody's lived there. It's been dormant. The place is a disaster from what they did to it in searching it and destroying it and all that stuff. And he goes back in there, and the kitty's there, and he's like, oh, he, he recognizes the cat, Gabriel. Hey, how are you doing? You know, whatever. And he starts to get his his bearings back right right and little things like touching the cat brought back memories of anything he touches that was involved in the crime or at the scene of the crime or anything like that he gets the memories which i think is kind of a cool little effect for him no and it gives him the story yeah it's it's how he can piece together memories is by physically interacting with things we'll see later he grabs ernie hudson and that's how he sort of understands that his fiance lived for 30 hours after being attacked and before she dies and he'll Mm -hmm. use that we'll talk about how he uses it later but he's able to absorb that and it makes him i mean it it gives him this infinitely unbelievably depressive sadness and anger and rage all at the same time and there's another thing too like calling the cat gabriel i don't know if that's i mean if that's part of the comic again i'm just going to feign ignorance but there's some symbolism in that you know gabriel in in the uh, in the bible is like a guardian angel right and a guardian warrior angel, angel yep. right mm-hmm. so i'm like hmm okay a little little symbolism there like nothing's thrown in the movie for no reason whatsoever, especially a guy like Alex Proyas, because he does these kind of movies and stuff. And so he knows this. And I'm like, okay, I kind of like that touch. Like, it's nice. It's a subtle thing. So if you pick it up, it's cool. If you don't, you don't. And I'll be honest with you, I did not see, remember that the first time seeing it when I watched it for this review, I was like, oh, oh, that's kind of neat. That's smart. And then they'll, they'll play it out later because Sarah will come in contact with that cat. I'm also not too mm-hmm. sure that that cat wasn't dead and that the crow didn't do some pet cemetery on it and bring it back anyway. Just no, to, no, just, no, just to help him, just to help him remember, but it's got nine lives. No, so, man. I mean, he's you know. in, he, well, he's in a, a abandoned building. You gotta, right. uh, you gotta think there's mice for days. Right to feast on, but but that so cat is I'm also sure he was resourceful. That cat is also pristine, clean. Yeah, he's white. a little too well groomed. I agree. <laughs> yeah. However, if it's just eating mice in a in an apartment and staying there, there's it's not getting dirty, dude. I can walk out of my apartment for two <laughs> days and there's three inches of dust in this place. It's there's no way uh, that cat is that white. I, I, it, I'm nitpicking <laughs> because I'm having fun with it. Because again, in the '90s, we didn't think about that kind of crap. We we're just like, ooh, cat, you know. And now. Now we can nitpick that stuff, uh, but it's it's funny to me because both times they see the cat, you're in a burned out, wet building, and the cat is gorgeous. <laughs> you know, oh cat. yeah, and I'm sure that cat like had a trailer and everything else because we we've, we've treated cats in, in Hollywood <laughs> great for years, uh, animals in particular. But no, I, I like that though. I like that device though. You're right. When he interacts with things from his past, 
and places he gets these violent memories. And that's where we see a lot of the flashback of the attack too. And it's when he, he grabs like, was Sarah or Shelly also an actress? Cause he grabs like all this kabuki makeup or something. And like he starts doing that. We saw that little face mask hanging up and he, that's when he puts on the makeup that he'll have for the bulk of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was part of his uh, band outfit. Maybe he dressed well, up like a kiss. I, I'll, thing. I'll say knows? no to that only because they show us so many times pictures of his band and he's just regular face dude. Yeah, I suppose. Band, so. I, who knows? Yeah. It could have just been makeup that they had lying around for something. Uh, it could have been Halloween costume. We don't really well, know. Well, they were getting married on Halloween, so maybe it was part of the getup. We don't know. But but it it, be. it it becomes part of the whole uh, mythos of this dude and the way he looks and stuff. Because the, you know, the, the first thing he's going to go do is go right on the rampage, right? Like he is not going to mess around. And the crow, like the crow and he have this telepath pathic bond where the crow can go find people look at them and then you see like crow vision you know and he gets yeah. beamed right into his head like and here is 1010 this guy with like just tons of knives on him right and that's the first one that draven's going to go after is 1010 yeah let's set that up too beforehand too because we got to talk about our our gang of thugs here because they have a scene Right off the top in a bar, the bar that uh, Sarah's mom, Darla, is the name, works at. And you've got Tintin, T-Bird, Funboy, and, and Skank sitting around. And they're popping live bullets into their mouth and swallowing them with alcohol. Yes. To prove their manliness <laughs> to each other, right? And who can do it the, the most brutal, gruesome way? Um, and right. I think T-Bird wins by putting a cigar out on his tongue after swallowing one with whiskey or Jack or whatever it is. Right. And <laughs> so we get set up with the gang right off the top. These are the four guys that Eric Draven is going after, right? The Crow's going after. These are right. the four guys. To complete his mission, he has to get rid of these four guys. Top Dollar is, by the way, not one of the people he has to go after until the very end, and the reason we'll get into later. But these four guys are his mission. They're getting set up as a bunch of just imbeciles, right. I would say. You, you, called, you called four thugs. I was like, th- th- you know, three blithering idiots and one half psychotic are sitting in a bar. Is the way yeah. you said the scene. Yeah. And I love, again, I love this, this kind of movie that to prove how tough you are, you do something incredibly reckless and stupid. And so instead of like jumping off of a high building through a table or running and playing in the traffic <laughs> or seeing who can hold the match the longest before it burns your fingers or no, let's swallow live 38 caliber nine millimeter bullets because yeah, that makes me tough. Actually, no, you'll probably just get indigestion and then, you know, it'll be gone in 24 hours. So whatever. But I, it would have been weirder if they like uncorked the bullet and like swallowed the gunpowder, then chased it with the shot. That would have been okay. But this is weird. Yeah. It also would have made putting the cigar out even more cool or dangerous. I, I don't know. It's, it's just let like it blow up on you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, might as well. I mean, these, these guys are. I'm gonna. I wrote it down in my notes that I didn't share this with you. I was like, "Friggin' Bugs Bunny villains! Like these guys are ridiculous. They are Looney Tunes." But, 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 I would, I would hate them and just have nothing for them at all. Like, couldn't care less. 
if it weren't for David Patrick Kelly. He is that energy he has. And again, I know I'm bringing in stuff from other movies where he was playing a heavy, but he has such a weird psycho energy and he is so fun as T bird, even when he's playing kind of straight. Cause like he plays weirdo with them and then he goes in with, you know, top dollar oh, yeah. and, and death, Tony Todd and, and he's playing kind of cool. You know, so I love the fact that he can go both ways. He sells all of this for me. He is the thing that makes the gang work. Absolutely. And that's why he's the leader. <laughs> well, yeah, he's probably that's the only way he can also complete sentences. I mean, uh, steak and not. And the other two, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's Tintin, just, uh, Tintin had some good sentences in there. Tint, Tintin has right? a lot of things to say. So, yeah, you're right. We set him up at the bar. We set up Darla as the barkeep that has been around with all of them many times, you know, mm-hmm. right? So we can mm-hmm. only imagine. Well, her favorite's Fun Boy, right? Right. Then right. we'll find out we later set that up. about that because they're kind of junkies together is the, is the thing. Um, mm-hmm. And she's Sarah's mother. We'll find that out, you know, in this too. But yeah, that's how we set up the gang and then we get the Crow, Draven versus Tintin. Right in. Yeah. Yeah. Tintin's in the back alley and the Crow finds him and he goes and comes down all dressed up, and I, lo- I, I mean, I like this interaction a lot. You know, he's uh, Tintin's just like, you know, what what are you all dressed up for? Halloween ain't till manana. And then he's like, come on, boy. And they get into a little fight, and he <laughs> they start, you know, pounding on each other. And Tintin thinks he's got everything going here because he's got Draven down. And he says, I'm going to introduce you to a couple of my friends. They never miss. And then of course he throws the knives at him because he's an expert knife thrower, apparently, which we set up already in the crime scene portion of this, where he, he throws a knife and gets Draven in the back. Yeah. Um, that's what takes him down originally. And then they shoot him twice. Right. So, um, you know, it's a cool little scene, and I love the fact that we get the the knife thrown. He misses completely. He throws a second one. He swats it away, and the third one he catches dead on. And you you mentioned it earlier the same thing Buffy does in uh, in one of the episodes of, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer catches it right there, right before hitting their face. And Tintin um, doesn't know what the hell to do at that point. It's it's quite a, a, a gruesome scene where. You know, these guys are so dumb when Draven has him, you know, basically pinned and up against the wall and telling him to tell him what happened with Shelly. They're just mocking him. He's mocking Eric Draven, right, about the whole thing. Yeah, I I fucked her so good, blah, 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 blah. I I killed her, this and that. And, like, no fear. (laughs) Well, (laughs) but but that's the thing. Dude. These guys are are completely – a cardboard caricature bad guys in every way except for T-Bird in a lot of ways. But they they do have a little depth to them. And I'm talking about two things I really like here. First off, the Buffy thing is in Becoming Part 2 where she catches Angel's sword before she starts kicking his ass again. Uh, so I have, to, I have to put my Buffy card out because <laughs> uh, I remember that scene. And, and you can go back to the Art of Slaying podcast and listen to me talk about it for two hours nearly. And how awesome. I, I love that show and that particular episode. But anyway, I remembered that. Uh, but what I really like here is that you know Draven is – grilling him for information and he you know he basically pins him to the wall with one of his knives and we don't see him kill him like we see the no. after effect of it later on when the dude is basically a pin cushion with all the knives which is awesome and they're just dragging him away my and fa- the, one of my the favorite look- one of my 
favorite lines T-Bird telling Top Dollar. He stuck him with his knives in alphabetical order in all his major <laughs> organs. I, I, was, I started like going into my head like, what would that? How would that work? You know. But. Well, first of all, how would you know what order he put them in? Right. <laughs> but weird yeah, that was detail. a great line. Great line. It's such a weird detail, and but again, it's. I, I, I love the fact that we don't see him do all of that. We see the after effect of it, you know. And a lot of times, like I would ding a movie for like, Mm-mm, no, you show, don't tell. But this isn't a slasher movie, and th- that's what I would say a slasher no, movie right. needs to do, or maybe even a, just a cheesy action movie. I would need to see you do that. This movie is trying to operate on a little bit of a different level, and it's telling things in this out of order sequence, which is going to become part of the '90s. And you know, we can thank Quentin for that, but there's a lot of other people that were doing it too, and. And I like that because it's a way to slowly unravel stuff about this. It also allows us to realize that our anti-hero, if you will, <clears throat> our lead, does some pretty deplorable and horrible things. And he's going to oh, do some pretty horrible things in the end, but we don't have to see him do all of it. And we don't have to, we just get to see the after effect of it. I dig that. And, and I really like that about the whole way he sets this up because 1010 leads him to the pawn shop, which 1010's already been at, uh, a little bit before. Yep. And we'll, we'll come to that in a sec. But no, I dug it. And I, what the Betty's thing is when they're hauling the dude away and he's, again, he looks like a pincushion and he's just, the actor has just has this look on his face like, how the hell did that happen? You know? <laughs> and I'm like, man, it's just, I love that that guy just decided like, no, man, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a look and just please like, get my face in the camera and they're like, okay. And it's, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's not supposed yeah. to be, but it's kind of funny. And, and so I'm enjoying the humor of that before we get to the, the pawn shop part. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you now, this is th- this part. And up until Craven gets a hold of T-Bird, I both times watching this movie, this is where the movie kind of gets a little shaky for me. Cause now okay. we, we get into a little boilerplate in my book. Okay. Well, I, I do want to say that um, after each kill, there's a sign left, right? Right. In this case, uh, Tintin's blood is made in the uh, shape of the crow on the on the brick wall behind them. I love Ernie Hudson's comment to the detective. What is that? The detective says, and he says, well, um, it's blood, but I guess you would call it graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> just a great, just well, a great line. Just and again, another things. reason to think this guy's probably on the take. Ernie Hudson knows that he just can't prove it, and so yeah, but well, it, I'm but, sure. But it does lay another level into how ineffectual as a whole the department is. They're just there cleaning mm-hmm. stuff up the whole time, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, the so let's let's yeah. go to this pawn shop scene though, because yeah. um, I I love this pawn shop owner. He's in, in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, he's in Detroit. He doesn't take crap from anyone. He knows that these people need money for whatever, drugs, alcohol, whatever they need them for. So he knows he's in control, right? They can't kill him because they finance these guys, right? Um, so he just basically tells people like it is, like, well, he's, screw you. He's their fence. Off. I mean, in a lot of ways, he is their fence. He's moving their, their smaller stolen goods back through yeah, the, the community. Yeah. So, yeah. For sure. So uh, I like how it's set up. He he has Tintin in there earlier, uh, has him close the, and lock the door, the gate, right? He's in there counting his money for the day, and someone's rapping on the door. And, of course, he says, go away, we're closed, F off, whatever. And then all of a sudden the door opens, and, of course, he's like, holy shit. Grabs his gun, no, gets ready. No, hold on. He says, shit on me, shit on me, shit no, on me. No, that's after. That's after <laughs> – no, that's after Draven is about to 
freaking yeah <laughs> he doesn't say that until draven gets shot in the hand and then it closes up weird way to say it, it no matter when you say it what okay that is just strange Okay, so we have to set this up because it hasn't happened yet. This is, I think, the first scene in which we find out that he's supernatural, right? I mean, we obviously well, know oh, this because well, he's on. alive. Well, hold on. I, I think we got that already. When he catches the knife, like ducking the knife well, is no, one I, thing. I understand. That I'm, but I'm he, like, yeah, I think he's supernatural. We know he's supernatural. Okay, so this is the first time we find out he's uh, he can't die at this point. Right? He's indestructible. Anything, what this is. Yes. Anything well, no, you no, hold on, though. Hold on, he hold, heals from. Hold on, though. Hold on, though. There is that scene when he first comes back to his apartment. He does like that, I don't know, gymnastics move on top of a broken glass window. He swings out and then swings back in, and his hands are all cut up, and then the, the scars heal immediately. So they have set that up for us. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. All right. Fine. That's good. But here's a this is a good one because we're going to find out that he is impenetrable to bullets and everything else, which is a big point in this because obviously he's going to get shot up a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in this movie. But anyway, he goes in there. He tells the, the guy he's looking for a ring. The guy tells him to go F off. He's like, no, 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 you need to get this for me. The guy goes after him, tries to hit him with a bat, misses him. He hits him instead with the bat, whatever. They have a little back and forth, and finally the guy takes his gun out and shoots him. And, of course – oh, no, he shoots him in the shoulder. I'm sorry. He shoots him in the shoulder. Draven goes out back like he's hurt, and he comes back up, and it heals. And that's when he says, shit on me, shit on me. <laughs> and – um he knows he's screwed, right? But Draven only wants one thing. He wants the ring that he gave Shelly as an engagement, the wedding ring, right? And so he finally gets the guy to tell him where it is after stabbing his hand into his little box <laughs> so he can't go anywhere. Gets it, and you see him. I love the scene, though. He's sitting there, eyes closed, grabbing each ring, throwing it. Nope, nope, nope. Gets the one, and it's like, oop, right there. The memories come see, back, right? See, yeah, I see the... Yeah, whole engagement scene and everything. I love that that way they do that though too. Because when it's first with his eyes closed, I was like, "What is this weirdo doing?" And then that's when I realized, and I didn't realize it until after the movie. But you brought it up. Everything he touches that was part of his past is how he can relive parts of it and sort of rebuild mm -hmm. his memory. So he gets reconstituted and brought back to life, but he doesn't know things he doesn't know. Like he has to figure that out some way. So they've given him this supernatural power as a way of seeing it from somebody else's point of view. Right. So basically he gets to see Shelly's point of view of their engagement. And I'm on one hand, I'm like, well, that's really terrible and, and so sad. But on the other hand, I'm like, that's actually kind of a cool power. Like that's, that's sort of yeah, neat. Oh. And, and they did this. I'll tell you another movie series that does it. Predator did this in one of the, one of the sequels. I can't remember which one now, but like a predator gets killed and the other one picks up like its visor and can sort of see its last moments. So it knows like what alien killed it or whatever at that moment. And I'm like, I kind of, mm. I like that conceit that like there's something physical from the world that can then become metaphysical for this other character. And it's cool to watch him sort of flip through him with his eyes closed. He finds the right one. And I love the fact too that the ring is like nothing special. It's just a little, it's, mm -hmm. it's nothing, right? Well, he is a musician. Right, right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Though, but I love, I love the detail of that. It's like, but for them, it meant everything. It's like, well, you didn't have Absolutely. nothing. It was just, it, it, it meant everything to him and her. And so that's, it's a big deal to get a hold of that. And I know I, I did like that. It's the best part of this scene. Um, 
Because everything else is just really kind of cheesy and funny to me. Like it's not I mean, bad. It's just, yeah. What's really it's funny. funny to me it's, is is when he walks out of there. He's got the ring. He's got, this, and he also grabs his guitar because I don't know. He needs to rock out later in the graveyard for some reason. Well, he's so. a musician. He's got to play his he music is, band, and he an does. He does rock out later on the top of a roof. So <laughs> he, he does. Yeah, it, it gets there. He just needs but, to um, get a couple I, of chords in. <laughs> I mean, he does. He does what he wants. He tells them to tell everybody that he's coming for him. Right. And that tells him his name. Um, I'm Eric Draven. I'm coming for you. Now, this guy doesn't know anything about Eric Draven and what the hell he's doing and any of that crap. So he goes to Top Dollar to explain what happened. Uh, actually, he doesn't go to Top Dollar. He goes to the bar to get drink and get drunk. And the the I guess Top Dollar's lieutenant. Would you call yeah, him? Yeah, I don't know Comes what down and tells Tony me Todd is, but but in my own mind, I have now retconned that the fact that Tony Todd gets killed in this in such a violent way is how he becomes the embodiment of death in the Final Destination movies. Uh, because this is this <laughs> is right. this is how Tony, this is before Tony Todd was anybody really, and I love this guy. He's so funny, he's a cool voice, and, yeah. and but but he, the way he's dressed, like he's dressed like a pimp, like he's got these gold rim glasses and these top hat and his beautiful suits. Everybody else is dressed like crap. And he looks like a gangster out of the thirties. He would fit into demolition man pretty well too. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. He would, he has that kind of, (laughs) if he had a, Thicker mustache, he could twirl it for you. Uh, but I uh, know I love Tony it's Todd. He just chews up scenery. And the thing is, is that I don't get enough Tony Todd and David Patrick Kelly in the same scenes together enough where they can just eat the scenery from one end to the next. And then we collapse into a black hole of dead scenery because they can both chew it up. But no, I, I love the fact that, that that guy sort of ferrets out this fat loser and, and wants to take him. Uh, well, he's get more like I said, I think. I think he's the lieutenant for Top oh, Dollar. No, I mean, he, he does everything. Is. He does the investigations. Yeah. He tells everybody what to do. He's he's the coordinator for Top Dollar. Top Dollar says, I want this done. He coordinates it and figures out how it gets done. Right. And I like that. I like his character a lot. And so he comes down and tells the tells Gideon that he's got a meeting with Top Dollar. And, of course, he's all excited, right? <laughs> and so he goes up there and tells him what, everything that happened and who it was and all this other stuff. And basically tells him off in front of him like you're a dumbass. Right. <laughs> he, no one in this movie who's criminal is very smart. No. And they just like to basically mouth off to everyone. And when you're talking to the top guy, probably not the best guy to mouth off to. And so he gets his a nice sword, which we find out that Top Dollar is an excellent swordsman. For some reason. In more ways than one. And uh, (laughs) he puts a nice sword through the throat of uh, of the pawn shop owner, and my favorite one of my favorite lines is, is when he says, "Oh, just die already!" Right, and then gets the gun it. and shoots him. Yeah, instead. and he, get, he gets this <laughs> enormous gun, like this ridiculous gun <laughs> to shoot this guy with. I'm like, man, that gun is so nineties. I mean, it doesn't like a leftover RoboCop prop. Like, it is uh, is no reason that gun needs to exist. But okay, he, so he, he guns him down. That guy's useless and dead now, and. and we move on because we got I'll call we got, the janitor to clean up. Right. Cause we've got <laughs> more people to kill now in, in between all of this though, we get some scenes with Sarah who meets up with Ernie Hudson Albrecht, this cop yes. right at his favorite hot dog stand where he eats the most gross concoction on top of a hot dog ever. Um, ketchup and onions together and onions. No, no, thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Call me un-American. It's a basic, want, no. it's a basic hot dog. I wouldn't put onions on anything, but no. uh, the ketchup and mustard for sure. 
Just must, but, yeah, mustard's for a hot dog, out. ketchup's for a hamburger. How many times have we got to go through this? So, no, <laughs> no, no. Cheaper than a hot dog with no mustard, but you got to have ketchup too. Later, later anyway. on Food Strip, we'll, we'll continue that argument. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway. I, I like that they set up the fact that Ernie Hudson's character, Sergeant Albrecht, has kept up with Sarah. You know, he he feels for her because she doesn't get looked after anymore. These were the people taking care of her. He probably knows that Darla's a screw up. Not much he can do about that. And so he kind of looks after her and they have a relationship built after this tragic event and they still keep in touch. I think that's kind of a cool little aside there. No, it's it's neat. And it, it, it's also a plot device that they put more of in when they realized they lost their lead star. Uh, because the, and there wasn't a lot left to shoot with Brandon Lee, you know, after he had died. No, they were towards the end, yeah. Yeah, but but they've talked about, like, yeah, they added a little bit more to Ernie Hudson. One, because he's Ernie Hudson and he's really good. And this girl, was Rochelle Davis, was really good. And But they also wanted to stretch it. Alex Proyce movies, with the exception of, like, God's Name, tend to be, like, an hour and 40 minutes long. And so that's just kind of – that was a sweet spot, you know, and they wanted to try to hit that. And so he – it was padding out the length, but it wasn't just filler. Like you need to have a break from all this weird action and this crazy supernatural shit happening all the time, or else this movie is just way too much. Like one, it would be way too cheesy, and then it would also become a little too heavy if you didn't have some human levity. Because the two like most human people in left in this story are this cop and this girl, because they both have been kind mm-hmm. of thrown in the corner and forgotten. By everybody else, like the department couldn't fire him, but they busted him down. And they stuck him basically on a desk and just just ride out till you get your pension and then leave us alone, Albrecht. And this girl is just totally neglected. Like she's she grows up on the street. She is by herself. She skateboards in the freaking rain. Yeah. I mean, for goodness sake. So they they don't have anybody else except their own self reliance. And the fact that they can find moments together it gives human levity in the middle of a a really jam packed supernatural action movie. So I I dug the fact that they had scenes together. Plus the two actors really worked well together. They had good chemistry. Together. Yeah, they did, and, and I agree with everything you just said there. I like that uh, how they played the storyline for Sarah up. Um, they talk about it at the beginning of how Eric and Shelly took care of her. Then they show us later her mom she, her and her interaction at the bar where she goes to get um, something after this cop scene, right? She goes to see what mom's doing and mom's all over fun boy and completely gone and basically tries to give her some cash to go get food. And she's like, I already got fed by the police. And, you know, they're making fun of her when she leaves. And you just see that that relationship with mom and, and daughter is just awful, right? She doesn't even call her mom. She calls her Darla. Um, she talks to the bar owner, of all people. And he's basically saying, there's nothing I can do. She's off technically off her time right now she can do whatever she wants blah 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 and it's almost like he doesn't care that she's a screw up which is well, weird for me but i read it differently um, i read that he cared but there was only so much he felt like he could do and i didn't read him as the bar owner i just read him as the friggin bartender like he was no so i think dude. he's the boss so really i think he's the boss oh, I, I do I and I, okay. I really I don't think he does care. I think he cares about Sarah and her situation, but I don't think he cares about Darla. She's an employee and but she's a screw up. The whole point of this is so Darla, we can see Darla and Fun Boy together and they go up to his mm-hmm. you know, ratty apartment to, you know, above a, the bar, by the way. Yeah, above the bar to get it on and shoot up with what uh, Draven will say later is morphine. I, I mean, I was Apparently. like, I thought this was heroin, but 
heroin. Yeah. yeah, but no, apparently I don't. I don't know. Maybe that's the thing. But um, they're they're doing drugs, whatever. And of course, Draven shows up, and this is a you know big scene because it's Michael Massey oh. and, and this One guy. Of, another. Mm. Another really great line here, too, when they're making out and she looks over and the crow's there and she says to him, there's a big fucking bird over there. <laughs> I love that line. It's just so random. It is, it it is just, weird. It's, it's random, one of the but, classics. But it's setting up again, not about classic, but it's setting up again that the crow sees something that hot wires into Eric Draven's brain. And he's like, oh, that's my next target. And so, of course, he yep. shows up and we have a little shootout. We have a little... Ta da ta, and then he basically kills the guy and throws him into a bathtub and turns the water on. Oh no, no, he doesn't even kill him yet, right? No. Nope. So here's the thing: shoots or the guy shoots himself basically way in a scuffle with yeah. Eric Draven, right? Mm-hmm. And it basically knocks him out from the the bleeding. He then Darla has gone into the bathroom to hide. She grabs what is a shaving uh, knife type thing and to try and protect herself. Yep. He comes in dragging fun boy, puts him in the shower and turns the shower on. Now he's still alive at this point because you'll see they come back to it where he's packing the morphine needle up and they come back to it and he's still he's shaking in the tub and Draven basically pumps him full of what? Five or six needles of morphine. Oh, that's what kills him. Okay. See, I I missed that because it, because I, like you I told gotta you, remember too. Mm-hmm. You, you got to remember too that Draven is getting information from these guys. Every kill he does, he's getting some information for him. So that he doesn't kill them until the very end. And you don't see the kills, but you know that he's given information, and they they allude to it too. Um, before he took his last breath, he said this or that. Um, yeah. That's a line that comes later on, but that's kind of where it goes too. And before obviously he kills this guy, he takes the arm of Darla and squeezes the morphine out of her veins yeah, for her, which instantly weird. makes her not high. Which yeah, I that's, was not, interesting. that's also not how that works, but okay. He tells her that her daughter's in the streets and needs her. And do you understand? And of course she's not high anymore, right? Because the morphine has been squeezed out of her and she understands and, and leaves. She runs off, right? He right. lets her go. Then he proceeds to kill fun boy after that so he does he's still alive and he kills he kills him in the bathtub uh with the morphine so that's but this is probably of all the kills in the movie this is the best one because of the interaction that goes on between fun boy and eric draven there's some great lines he uses the joke about jesus christ walks into a inn and asks the innkeeper to he gives him three nails asks him to put him up for a night right it's a joke going on between them fighting. And this is the scene where he puts his hand on the gun and tells him to take a shot. He shoots. There's a big hole in his hand. He turns around. Terrible effect, by the way. But then it closes up on and he's laughing the whole time. And Fun Boy is just blown out of his mind from this. But great interaction between these two and, and probably my favorite of the kill scenes because of the interactions that they have. They, this is the most interactive he is. Well, I agree with that. He's the most interactive he is. But like I told you, I started kind of eh, waffling a little bit here and there up until he, he reunites with T-Bird. I would argue that the way he kills T-Bird is the best, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I, I, I don't know. I, something about this one just didn't land for me. Either time, like I, I totally didn't remember how he killed the guy. And if you hadn't have repainted the picture for me there and you did a great job with it, wouldn't remembered it, any of it. Like, honestly, like, oh. I, I just look at it as this is the middle kill in the middle of the four. I know he's got, you know, more people to go. So, 
I don't know. It's just something about it didn't make – it was all done really so we can try to make Darla a more responsible adult in Sarah's life. And they try to do that a little bit later. She's trying to make her eggs or something and I don't know. Yeah, the next day. Yeah, Wikipedia says well, they repair their relationship. I'm like, I didn't really get that from that. But OK, like she's trying but you know, scared. Well, they uh, – yeah, I wouldn't say that they repaired it. But yeah. she's reaching out and the daughter finally allows her to after she's about to throw the eggs away. Either she's really hungry or she's reaching it's an extreme version of scared straight. Uh, and, and that's what I'll say. Yeah. Is this what's yeah. going on with her? No, I mean, just to me, the lines in this kill are the most memorable just because of how fun boy, the actor played them and Dra- Draven interacted with them. I understand that the T-Bird kill is really cool too. And there's some great lines in that one as well. But this one just always stuck out to me as, as one of my favorite parts. So uh, to me, I like this one. I see, and it just again, it didn't do anything for me. And this is where I started to kind of think: is this as the movie already hit its peak for me, and am I now on a downhill slope? And I get that question answered for me very quickly because we get a great scene between the non-human Eric Draven now, whatever he is, and Sarah later when they do catch up, and he has to explain to her, like, you know, I can't, I can't really be friends with you anymore, but it doesn't mean I don't care about you. And I, mm-hmm. I like that. Again, those, uh, part of it, again, is that kid actress does a great job. Uh, but I also think, again, Brandon Lee, when he's not trying to play zombie psychopath, it's actually kind of fun. And it's sort of neat. And it's sad that we, I never get to see anything else this guy could do because he's, he's, yeah. he's got good humor and he's got a great charm to him. And I'm like, man, this is just – I can see why people – thought this guy could carry a $20 million movie, which that is no small thing in 1994. That was a big deal. No, And and I'm like, I get it. I totally get the charisma on the dude. And it wins me back because again, I I had started to go like, okay, now this is just like, you know, 50,000 other things I've seen. And maybe they came before it. Maybe they came after it, but whatever. It's the, it's the boilerplate formula of the time, but they bring us back in when we get the moments with Sarah. And that's, when I I know I'm back on train with the movie, and then we we get the great T Bird kill, uh, which we're going to get to. But I wanted mm. to we're going to you know, throw it to you for a little bit on the Sarah and Draven because they didn't really get to interact again until the very end after that. Yeah, and I I like the whole way they set it up too. Like she goes to the apartment and expecting that she sees the cat. He's as there, well, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So she has an interaction earlier where uh, in the street. Where someone's sitting there and talking to her and he drops the line, it can't rain all the time, right? And so that kind of spurs her memory. She goes back and puts the record on and hears that line. And that's what makes her think that Draven's back. So she goes and looking for him at the only place she could think of that he would be, his old apartment, and starts talking about how she she heard his line and you know oh then nothing happens she says yeah you probably didn't care anyway and of course then silhouette in the window the light shines in there's the there's the crow sitting there i do care sarah <laughs> just real cheesy that, line that is very there. cheesy but, yeah but um you know it's a great interaction because up until this point we just heard that they took care of her now we see that their relationship together was actually uh, a mutual relationship of love for each other they they really had a kind of like brotherly sisterly maybe love or i don't want to say parent kid love because the, it, it wasn't really that kind of thing but they really no 
had a good friendship and relationship with each other that meant something to both of them. And you get to see that in this scene, and it, which is really nice because otherwise, why does Sarah really give a, a damn, right? Right, exactly. So I mean, it, we it, get that laid out. She is our center. Like Sarah is supposed to be the audience. She's the one that does the voiceovers, all that kind of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. she's the the eyes of the audience in this crazy thing. Uh, her and Albrecht kind of flip flopped that near the end, but they, they get to play that. And again, it's those human moments that ground us in this otherwise really weird <laughs> movie, um, that is, you know, just over the top. And it's about to just get insane over the top with its action scenes and stuff. We're about to get some nuts, explosions and shootouts and whatnot. But what I love here is we catch up with T-Bird and Skank who are going on another, uh, arson run or whatever whatever it is they're supposed to do and i love to like go to the convenience store and give me some road beers yeah okay so let's mix snacks it. and road beers only snacks and road beers only that's it so dude is like i don't know what skank's problem <laughs> is but he's I, getting anything he can <laughs> i mean he is like he's sort of slow a little bit and he's like also high on wd-40 or something reminds me of the skank character from a movie called the wraith the charlie sheen movie that nick and i reviewed back in the day you can listen to that in the archives but it's it's very i mean I mean, I'm not certain they didn't just rip that off from David Cheryl uh, doing this, but this guy's the same way. He's like eating potato chips and drinking chocolate milk or whatever in stores. All this crazy stuff going on. He has just the weirdest lines. But T Bird is, of course, waiting, you know, in the car, and that's when Draven catches up with him, right? And what I love that he does is he like tapes him down, duct tapes him to the to the seat, right? Um, Halloween Rob Zombie style. Uh, for, for William Forsyth. Yeah. And that's when it, it dawns on T-Bird, like, I remember you, man. I was just businessman. And then he repeats that weird line again from the poem or whatever. And right before he, like, I don't know, he has all this gasoline in the car and he sends him hurtling to his death with a grenade. Well, he's got lap. all of the, he's, <laughs> he's got, got yeah, he's got all the, the fireworks and bombs that they're using to set things on fire exactly. in the trunk of the car. Right. You know, th- this scene is great. It has some amazing lines in it. You know, we, we're going to go driving down and one of my wife and I's favorite lines is coming up here and I'll, I'll, I'll hit it when we get there. But uh, what I really like is he's in the car and, the guy's trying to negotiate with them. You know, what do you need, man? I, I'll get you anything you need. You want, you want money? You want drugs? You want women? I, I'll get, I'll get you whatever you need. And he's just like, oh, no, you know, whatever. And we get that one point where he recognizes him. And he goes, I know you, but, but you're not really you. You can't be you. We killed you, man. There ain't no coming back. And as he's taping them, there ain't no coming back, man. There ain't no coming back. And that's when he goes and gets shot up. But before, we got some really good fun scenes here where he basically tells him to drive and drive faster. And there's a scene where the two cops are sitting there filling their coffees <laughs> and the one is putting his creamer in. And all of a sudden here goes T-Bar just blasting through the intersection. Though, And the, the first cop who's driving goes, what the hell? Throws his coffee out and hits the gas. And then the coffee of the other guy goes all over the other cop. Just a funny scene, I thought. But the other great one is when t-bird gets hit by another car the guy gets out and says you hit my fucking car man (laughs) and t-bird nuts him and takes the car and as he's driving there's a splash of puddle that goes up on the car and he goes to turn the windshield wiper on and busts the thing off of the car and the best line goddamn foreign cars (laughs) 
And he's trying to wipe it from the inside of the car. Oh, makes my day every time I see that that one scene. I, I don't know why. It look, just look, does. David Patrick Kelly's awesome and is funny in this. And you get him and Brandon Lee gets to be funny in it while being, again, sinister. And, I mean, he's murdering people, so let's not lose sight of this, okay? But – it's the way he goes they about doing it. They deserved it. But, but, but no, they totally They're already it. dead. That's not the they point. They just don't know it yet. Yeah, that's, that's what he says, right? They are already dead. They just didn't know it yet. And what I love, though, is, again, he's still pumping for more information, right? What's funny to me, you laugh at all the other stuff. What I laugh at is when Skank is like, well, what in the hell is this? And he starts running after him. <laughs> he takes it off, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so he ends up, you know, he, he escapes that somehow. He's blown up halfway through it. But he, he gets back to Top Dollar and mm. is telling him everything that's going on in the only way that he can, which is insane, right? And he's, like, drinking mm, gasoline. Big time. All this other crap. I um, mean, he's really nuts. Um, he's T-Bird. Takes right. a shot. And the Fire thing is, is, like, Top Dollar and his – and this is what's weird. Like, he's got his – it's his half-sister that Baling is playing, but she's also his lover mm-hmm. or something. There's lots of weird oh, stuff going on there. Yeah, there's definitely some weird incestual th- ideas going on here. They never actually hook up in the movie. Well – They do – they do kiss each other. They had that scene though where she's in the shower, the naked girl's in bed, and like they talk about like we played too hard with her and we killed her. I'm like, you two have some weird fetishes. It's yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting dynamic, well, that's for sure. Can I just say something though? Like it's too much. Like that is like at this point, I'm like, she could have just been another hench person, or maybe she was his half sister. Well, whatever she was. It's, yeah, she was his oracle, I would say. Right, but the way that like we go through all that, like it's almost too much. It is too much for me. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's too much. I'm like, these people are evil. Now you just like heaped evil on top of evil. It's like, you know, I I went to a restaurant recently and they had like this chocolate brownie on caramel vanilla ice cream. I was like, that sounds awesome. And then I got it and I was like three bites into it. I was like, this is going to kill me. I can't eat this. I was like, that's what this is. I'm like, this is just a little too much. Like it looks great on the menu and it probably looked awesome on the page. And then they started shooting it and then they put it together. Obviously they went with it, but I'm like, I, you know, if I can rewrite, I would, I would take that out. Like it's too much. Like to me, it's just too much. And it, it's a level too far that we don't need. At this point, so I'm what'd I'm good to about the, miss that. What do you think about the eyes piece where they take the eyes out of the girl? They play that up a lot. The eyes are the the keys to the soul, and and that's how she reads everything, right? Same. And um, they take the, the same that it was yeah, just they take one the level eyes out and get high it, with it. It's also just a setup again, too, that she's going to get her eyes plucked out by the crow. Well, but she like, mentions a few times in the movie about eyes, right? I know. She that, looks that's at what I'm saying. Eyes, that's, and that's what. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm what saying. She sees like, things about people in right. Like they're so, setting, they're setting I, I up, it. they're setting up Chekhov's eyeballs. I mean, fine, but like the, when the crow plucked her eyes out, and again, having never seen it before until a few years ago, I knew I was like, eventually, somehow this this work girl is going to get something done to her eyes. And when she had a hold of that crow when she first grabs it, I'm like, mm, your your eyes are gone. Like, I just knew, you know, it's just, they've set it up too much. It's too much. She's okay. too much. I like okay. Biling. This is too much. This character is too much, but it doesn't matter because they don't waste a ton of time on it because we get top dollar holding a meeting. And what I realize now is that Christopher Nolan really likes this movie uh, because not only do we have some Joker makeup, you know, uh, on uh, Eric Draven in this movie, but we've got the meeting of the bad guys in the 
back warehouse or whatever, and we all have mm-hmm. to talk about how we're going to take down the problem and uh, have a little fun. Well, they're talking about yeah, they're talking about what to do with, with to up the ante of Devil's Night because <laughs> yeah. it's become too commercial. Yeah, and I'm like, is that some sort of statement about like if if something is is cool, then it gets taken by the corporations and it turns into you know Disneyland or whatever. And now it's not cool anymore. Like I I was like, well, somebody's trying to say something there, but it's ham fisted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think that's exactly true. But um, that's the point of it is he wants to make it bigger and more destructive than it's ever been because they're having Devil's Night greeting cards and it's become a joke. Everyone expects it to be this boring night of a bunch of fires. So now they need to do something big. So they're in this meeting to have this all. And that's when the crow, Eric Draven, show up to crash the party. I mean, get, this movie they, they, they're there for skank. This movie is full of loud gunshots, and I know I live in a world now where we have much more realistic sound effect action than we've ever had and stuff. This is like a Sergio Leone Western going off here. Like, there's so nobody ever reloads. Like, it's got the Arnold trope of that. It's tons of guns, tons of bullets, and I'll give the director credit for this again. Normally, this kind of scene, you want to see everybody. You want to get close up. She goes, this is a big, dark, open warehouse with some industrial pumping music and gun blazing everywhere. And it's in the dark. Like, that's the cool thing is that the lighting is mostly done by the gunfire effects. And that's a mm-hmm. nice artistic touch in the midst of what otherwise I would write off as just another cheesy action scene. Cause it's a thousand bullets and it's, it's like a video game or something. You just walk into a room and just hit, you know, pull the trigger and just get, eh, you know, million rounds going off against the wall. Um, it doesn't do a lot of good is the thing I would say. Like he shoots a lot of people, but I don't, well, I mean, he takes out, I guess, all the henchmen surrounding top dollar, but who are not good shots. They're like stormtroopers. But other than that, like it's, it's just a cool well, I mean, set they're, piece. They're, they're fine shots because they're shooting him and he just doesn't do anything to him. Right. Well, this is true. You're <laughs> you right. You can shoot him all you want, and it, it just yeah. doesn't have an effect. You know what? I, the the point is, is that he went in there and said all he wants is skank. Give him skank. Everyone else lives. Nobody cares. No problem. They wouldn't do that. So then it came a big brawl. Right? He really just is focused on getting skank because skank is the last guy who was involved in this murder of his girlfriend and him that he needs to take out. That's his last revenge. Right, because he doesn't know who Top Dollar is. Like He doesn't have any idea. Like, like he's been dropped that name. He has no idea what role that person has in all this. And he's never seen him in any of his visions because he's not involved in them. Right, because all his visions well, are the four characters. Well, and that's the that layers at of, the scene of the crime. That's the layers of criminality too, right? Is mm-hmm. that you know you don't right. ever you're not ever at the scene. You're just making sure other people are doing your bidding. Uh, no, absolutely. So I mean, but that's Eric Draven doesn't care about Top Dollar because Top Dollar wasn't there. He didn't kill his wife. He didn't rape his fiance. You know, none of that. The, he wasn't involved. He may have orchestrated the crime and top dollar will explain that to him later but at this point he's just after the four guys who are there that did the crime and skank's the last one and top dollar's protecting him wouldn't give him up which why not i don't get but uh that's why this whole shooting scene goes down and he ends up killing half the crime lords right no no he he does take out a lot of people it's it's um you know again it's deaths of a lot of people present and he finally does kill skank 
You know, I mean, they gets what he yeah. wants. <laughs> Another so. great line. I ain't not skank. Skank's over there. Skank's dead, man. Yeah, skank is dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Out the window, dead. Yeah, he, he gets him that. And then that's what he think he's done, right? He's going back to his grave. Sarah's there to say goodbye. He gives her Shelly's engagement ring that he's been wearing as a necklace, right? And that's when Tony Todd, whose character's name is Grange, shows up. And takes her to the church where Top Dollar and Micah are waiting to, I don't know, get revenge on him. I, that's what I wanted to do. Like, what, they want to take out the crow for some reason. And I right. think a lot of it is Byling's character wants the power of the crow. Right. She sees that the power is – she figures it all out, right? She she's kinda, it out that – She's kind of mystical. Like she plays off yeah, a little bit she's, like that. Like I said, she's yeah. like the oracle for, for Top Dollar. She sees things in, in people that aren't seen. She sees things in the in the uh, supernatural that they don't see. Girlfriend, go to the magic box, get some tarot cards and incense. You don't need all that. If they'd have just no. – think about that. If they'd have just left it alone, he'd have gone back to the netherworld. And that'd have been it, yeah. you know. Well, so. or so he thought. I think that the whole point was that he still had to kill Top Dollar. He just didn't know it, I, and it took okay, them kidnapping Sarah to bring it in. Maybe because that was you, it. you, he's sitting at the grave, and she doesn't show up. Right? He's not done. The crow hasn't finished with him yet. And then they, of course, take Sarah, and now he's got to finish it off because. Top Dollar will explain to him that he's the one who ordered the hit on the apartment. He's the one who ordered the eviction and everything else and to scare the crap out of them. Right. So he doesn't know that yet until Top Dollar explains it to him. So, so yeah, that okay. there you go. That's interesting. So they do get to the church. Grain shoots the bird, uh, which we also find like this bird also has regenerative properties because it doesn't die. Like that would have killed that thing. But it, it doesn't die. Well, he shoots it in the wing. Right, right. But it, later on, it's fine. So, I mean, it, I mean, and I can read it as that. That's, I get that. It's fine. It should have those properties. It takes a minute for Draven to kind of reconstitute himself after he gets shot. Cause after all of his fights, like we should mention, like he gets the hell beat out of him all the time in, in these mm-hmm. fights, except for maybe the one with Fun Boy. Uh, but he gets shot in that one. He gets shot in the hand, like say, and it takes him a minute to kind of get over that. Like it's, you do regenerate, but it ain't, it ain't easy. You know, it's, it, right. it, it takes him a minute and you're absorbing that in some way or another. And I like the fact that he has to kind of put that back together and sort of you know, get himself together. And after the bird is shot, he's no longer invincible. He gets shot in the shoulder, and that's when Albrecht shows up. And they, you know, they're in the middle of the shootout. He shoots Tony Todd and kills him. So now, now he can be death and final destination, as as I've retconned and decided. <laughs> um, and I think I think that totally works for final destination fans out there. But I, I like the fact that uh, again, Brandon Lee gets to be funny. Here, like he plays all this off as a joke. He's like, "Yeah, I'm here to kill everybody." Slight problem. So I'm now corporeal yeah. again. Um, so this ain't gonna be as easy as I thought it was gonna be. Uh, what What I love here is that we get Albrecht and him going up the church tower, and of course Albrecht gets shot by Byling before the bird claws her eyes out, uh, which is a really gory and kind of fun scene where she drops to her death. But the sword fight on top of the church, man. Yeah. So he pulls out a samurai sword because we've set up again that he's a swordsman, top dollar is, and it's in the rain, of course. And Eric Draven grabs the weather vane, which just conveniently yeah. is shaped like a sword, um, to fight this guy off. <laughs> and I, I, not gonna lie, I laughed. I was like, that is so cheese ball. Like it's, I mean, I get it, and like, but 
it's it's looks ridiculous. Like it's kind of I don't know. I I didn't I didn't necessarily need him to like just you know pull a sword out of its pants that I didn't know he had Grand Theft Auto style or something. But the fact that he's like, oh, this weather vane, it's perfectly it's perfectly like a broadsword. So I, I don't. Well, you I, grab what you got, right? I guess I, mean, I don't know. I'm from, work with what's there. I'm from the south. He's our still our got churches power. our churches aren't real gothic down here, so maybe that's something that exists in architecture. But oh, it's, it seems like knows? the the architecture of convenience there a little. Well, absolutely, but that's a movie. You got to go with that kind of thing. I like this scene. I mean, who fights on the top of a roof, especially one that looks pretty slippery? And yikes! I see that a lot, they, though, man. It's like Dracula's castle or something. Like they they got to throw uh, it. It's really weird. Yeah, no, but they have a good a good back and forth scene, and Top Dollar gets the best of them, stabs him in the what was it the back? I think. Yeah, he stabs and, him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Gets him real good. Should kill him. No problem. But then before deciding to kill him for good, he decides to tell him the whole in, situation. In classic Bond villain fashion. Is what yeah, I, like, I, yeah, like, yeah, I got you. You're done. Yes. I'm going to tell you why I hate you. Yes. for Actually, I'm going to tell you why it wasn't personal. It's just business. That's what he's telling and you. Like, I'm going to piss you off yeah, before I kill you. It's just like, man, let me tell you my whole plan, and this is how that went down. Sorry, uh, you know, I, I employ some idiots. Uh, thanks for taking care of them for me. i got to find new ones. But, what? yeah, yeah it, it, it's the classic villain problem that I can't ding this movie for that. I ding every, you know, billions of them Oh, you it. can't. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just part of it. Formula. What yeah. I am going to say, though. Is what what I would have much rather seen was the bird like flap its wings and land on the stoop or something, and that's when Draven kind of powers back up. And for him to like, if he had pulled the sword out and then you know cut the dude in half or whatever, I would have gone with that more than what we get. But I get oh, what I happens. See, but I like what we get. Okay, I, I think I, it's a brilliant way because he, I don't. He's he's beat to hell. He's pretty much going to die here, right? Because he's got a sword through the through the back and then through the stomach. Um, there's not a whole lot you can do to recover from that. It's just it's the way it is. So what he has left to fight with? Nothing. He's got himself. He's hurt. He can't really fight physically because probably can't get up very well. And so what is left? He We've already set up this whole thing to come with the fact that he can touch things and absorb those memories and everything there and he uses that that memory that knowledge that he got from sergeant albrecht of darla going through hell for 30 hours not, not darla, to Shelley. get this guy or sorry shelly mm-hmm. to get this guy right and i thought it was a good way to use it i mean transfer that back to him to kind of throw him off his game and that ends up being his downfall is trying to explain to him what happened and here you go take the 30 hours of pain all at once. I liked it. I don't I thought it was good. It's almost like you you give somebody the well let me go back to Buffy here. You give him the gypsy curse. Where now you can experience all the pain that you've spent all these years dealing on everybody else and it drives you mad enough to where I can get the drop on you and throw you off a building. So you can land on a gargoyle that is also a, a, a rainstorm drain so that your blood pours out of its mouth because that's what we do in the 90s and it's cool. Hey, um, it's a good scene. Yeah. Good it's, visual. It's a good visual. It's a cool visual. I just have a problem with the end of the – I get it. I get that they've set it up, yes. And I get that narratively this is why it should work. I I would have rather him – be able to do that because it basically beats him with memory magic that 
I don't know. It just – it wasn't as cool to me again as everything else here had been some big over-the-top action scene. I, I kind of wanted one at the end, I guess. I mean, I I don't know. I, it's well, not, but it's but not you got bad. a big action scene, and then this is the the final piece of it. I mean, we got the, the, the fight. We got the – we got a lot of fighting, it's the, and look, I think – it's the same problem I have at the end of Batman 1989. It, it, it eventually all of that that we go through ends with a fist fight between a dude in a plastic suit and an old man on top yeah. of a building. And, and I said it, you know, then and I'll say it now. That ending is kind of unsatisfying. And this one, it, it's satisfying that the guy goes out that way because he's got to get a gruesome death. Like, I, yes, he needs to be torn in half and, you know, fed to the dogs or something. Like the cat needs to come nibble on him or something. Like I, I would have been okay with that, but I, I don't know. It's just the whole like, here, have 30 hours of pain that it's also secondary pain. Like that's the other thing. It's like Albrecht was at the hospital. He's obviously not a doctor, but, so he just had to watch it. So you're seeing – I don't know. The transfer of that just doesn't work for me is what I'm saying. OK. Well, I, I like it because I think that they've set up the whole thing that he can get everything from touching and, and everything. Why can't he then give it by touching as well? Well – I don't know. To me, I like it. I thought it was good because you've got a guy who's completely beaten. There, he has nothing, no strength. He can barely walk afterwards when he has to come back down. Um I don't know, man. I thought it was well done, and you use what you can, what you have available. He has no weapon. He has no strength. He's got <laughs> probably not a lot of energy. So what's left? He can give him memories that can disorient the guy, give him pain through that, and then he falls to his death. Just conveniently, yes, lands on a gargoyle's horns, but I like it. <laughs> well, I mean, that obviously, like they, those were all over that place. Like you could, you could walk by that church and not get like cut and deadness and stuff. So I mean, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> like, I, I'll say this about it: like, there's the thing about it that works narratively is that Draven has to use what's left of his own human strength to get the drop on the guy. Except he doesn't. He still uses the magic that he's been induced with, but he doesn't have like regenerative powers to come back. And I know I said a minute ago, I wanted the crow to show up and, you know, power him back up or whatever. That would have been cool. Um, I don't know if it would have been as it's uh, narratively. It works better if he has to think through the problem rather than muscle through the problem. Um, So, that's fine. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I mean, I think it's good. You, know. you, you got to remember, too, when he does finally leave and goes back to the grave, he's beaten to hell. Yeah, he's done. I mean, he, he's, he's yeah, he, he has nothing left. Yeah. And Shelly comes out and, and, and reunites with them. I don't, I don't know. I really liked it. Well, I like the end. I like the fact that he crawls back at the end and he's basically like, I just want to die. Like, I'm just done. I have nothing left. I'm just ready to go. And he can go peacefully. You know, because yeah. obviously he did not die peacefully in his life. Oh, so the yeah. fact that he's able to go back peacefully um, at that moment with her spirit, ghost, whatever you want to call it, um, that I liked that. And it, Sarah and Albrecht kind of go to the hospital together, and that that's the end, right? We get you know we get the mm-hmm. sad song, and that's that's it, you know. And um, I it's a satisfying ending. Again, I. I don't know. The whole magic transfer thing, again, like I said, just didn't work for me. But it did end on a good visual, and the ultimate ending is satisfying. Because I do like the fact that he doesn't just walk off into the dark and disappear. Like, that would have been stupid and really cheesy. It's the fact that he crawls back into his grave, basically. It's like, wow. It's Mm -hmm. sort of kind of sad. But it's the, you know, it's the old adage. Like, if you go after revenge, dig two graves, you know. And 
that's what he was there. He came back to get revenge. He got his revenge and he's done. Uh, and that was it. Now, his soul is at peace. Right. And now he can be, and that was the whole bit is that, you know, the, the crows carry you to the afterlife, but if there's so much pain that you can't go peacefully, the crows sometimes will let you come back and settle your problems before it's time to go. And, and the ultimate thing, you know, Sarah says in the end, it's, it's not the thing that keeps people alive. It's not memories. It's your love for each other, you know, and the fact that he, you know, she knew he loved her and that of course he and Shelly were star crossed lovers or whatever. And now they're together in the hereafter is what matters. And so, um, there we go. You know, that's, that's the whole movie. Uh, I, yeah. I have a couple follow-ups here just about the series, but we'll get to that in a minute. But bro, let's do, let's do something I've been waiting to do for over a year now. It's time for final thoughts, popcorn ratings, and recommendations. So what are yours for The Crow? No, well, it's not going to come as any surprise as I spoiled it at the beginning. This is one of my top two all-time favorite movies. I just love this movie. I've seen it so many times. Um, it's been a while since I watched it. So I was really glad when we decided to do this because I probably haven't seen it in a good couple years. I was actually surprised at how many lines I remembered from this movie. Cause I used to be able to quote everything. Um, Love it, love it, love it. Highly recommend it, especially if you're a child of the 90s. Uh, this is right up your alley. Uh, large popcorn, can't can't say enough about it. I'm going to join you in the large popcorn. It's not perfect, and obviously there's things about it that, that didn't work for me. It's not a big one for me, but I can see myself going back and watching this again at some point and maybe even go to the point of actually owning it, though it's, you know, it's on Netflix, so why own a physical copy anymore? Uh, but – Oh, come on now. <laughs> That's just me. That's I've got just, two DVDs and yeah, a Blu-ray. Yeah, no, I'm supposed to be at the VHS still. Uh, but, but I do want the soundtrack. I'm, I'm going to say that now. Like, yes. I'm, I'm going to get a copy of that soundtrack because that, that is some good stuff. But you know what? For all the things that I, I've nitpicked in this and, and I, you know, I want to give it a critical eye. I think it's worth doing. Um, this movie is so 90s and that's not a bad thing, but it definitely is something you need to know, particularly if you're, if you weren't in the movie going you know, age at that point when you, when this one came out and maybe you hadn't seen it or you hadn't seen it until you were much later, it definitely has a look to it that is not what you expect nowadays and it's very different. But if you think about when it came out and what was coming out with it and around it and what was going on at the times and stuff, it totally fits that as like a neat little time capsule for it. And as a one shot movie, it totally works. Um, again, beyond the tragic part of his death, it's sad that we didn't get any more Brandon Lee because, man, this guy, I think this guy would have been a real huge star. I mean, just tons yeah. of charisma. Now, you know, nobody else in the leads here, not so much, but they did the smart thing. They surrounded him with good character actors that could carry the other scenes. David Patrick Kelly is awesome in this. Tony Todd's only in a little bit of it, but he's fun. Ernie Hudson's great. Um, the kid, Rochelle Davis is great. Um, they, I mean, there's a, there's a neat cast here. Every, there's everything here to make a good movie and it's definitely a large popcorn. It's totally worth watching and definitely worth your time. If you haven't revisited it in a long time, do it. And if you, if you're like me, maybe you've never seen it, uh, go, go give it a shot. The crow is definitely worth your time. What I have a question for you, Brian is, have you ever bothered with any of the sequels to this or the continuing no. stories? Cause they're not the same character. I understand, but it's more crow ish well. stuff going on. Um, I have seen a couple. I saw City of Angels and absolutely positively hated 
every minute of that movie. Um, I thought it was poorly done. It was terrible. And um, it was just a rehash of the same story with different characters. And I didn't like it at all. And then I've also seen the um, the uh, David Boreanaz version of this. Or no, sorry, the Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst. Gosh, I can't say that. I've also seen the Kirsten Dunst version, which was called Crow Salvation. That one was done a little bit better, but I still didn't like it. Uh, to me, this is a one film franchise. It, they told the story in the first one. Any after of it, just I didn't need. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think it worked quite the same. This had such an impact on me that everything else has been a major letdown and I just don't need anyone else doing this movie. And especially if you're just going to tell the same story with different character. Uh, If you want to delve into the crow itself and maybe get into that part of it. Sure. But they didn't do that. Instead, they just told the same story with different, a different take. And I didn't like any of them. Yeah. I've only seen the part of the David Boreanaz one. You know, and that was back when Angel was a big deal, and I just wanted to see stuff he was in, and dude, it's bad. I don't think I've made it all the way through it. Like honestly, I don't, I don't remember anything about it. Which that should make you sad that I saw that one before I saw the original one. Um, but I kind of knew what the story was. Again, it wasn't, it's not that complicated of a story, so I do the basic thing. So I was like, well, I don't need to see it. I can just watch the the David Boreanaz one, and then I watched it. And I was like, no, 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 no. And uh, I'm I'm sad that I watched that before I watched this real one because this one is so good and it's so well done. And I agree with you. I could see, you know what, this would be a really cool television series, except they tried that and it was terrible. So they, they, they didn't do it <laughs> yeah. right. You know, I, I could see this getting resurrected as a TV thing. The problem is, is it, it's from such a time and it has such a look to it that it's hard to, I don't know. It would be hard to see how this would fit into like modern sensibilities, you know, if they wanted to try to do it again. But everything that's a hit's getting recycled, man. So there's talk of them doing a reboot at some point. So uh, I think the trick is you've got to find just, another good actor to, to carry it. And it's hard to do. Yeah. That, you know? I don't think you can capture the magic that this movie has um, by doing it again. You can sure as heck try, but I don't think it'll ever top the original on this one. I've seen remakes that I think are good or better than originals. I don't know that you can do that with this one. I think just when it was in time and how it was done, I just don't know that you can top it. I, I agree. It's very hard to beat something like this, and I don't know that they they ever will. And you know, maybe it won't happen. Who knows? You know, the properties get moved around a lot, but. As a standalone, if you just have the Crow 1994, I think it totally works. So we're saying all of that to let you know we're not going to be doing the Crow sequels, which would be our no. norm, normal MO. But we were both like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. I'm looking forward to the future. I think uh, it was a nice year off, but we're ready to go, man. Yeah, lots of lots of fun stuff in the works and things that we're going to talk about. And we'll do, you know, we'll still do single movie retrospectives and some series here and there. We'll also do kind of general topic stuff that we've banded around. There are lots of things we can do here. But, of course, folks, we thank you for your support. Our new website is filmstrippodcast.com. That's where you can find archives of the old podcast uh, shows. And you can also find links to the feeds where you can hear this. Of course, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. It's, it's, it's pretty much anywhere you 
can find a podcast, Pocket Cast, all that stuff. Uh, Overcast, we're on all of those now. Uh, so definitely check us out. Leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Do share the show if you like it. That helps other people find it as well. You can follow us on social media as well. We have a Facebook page. Just search for Film Strip Podcast and you'll find us there. Uh, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Film Strip Pod. That's a good way to keep up with the show and what's happening and what we've got coming up here and there. But it's a lot of fun. And Brian, when folks go to the website or if they go to the feeds, they're going to get, uh, shall we say, a curated list of our shows. We had over 250 episodes in the film strip uh, vault when we locked it down over a year ago. And we've come back with about 170 of them or so, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think we cleaned up some of the stuff that just either was started and never finished. Um, so just some of the stuff where the production wasn't up to our standards or the show content just didn't seem like we wanted it out there as much. So I, I think we've pulled the best of them. I mean, 250 plus episodes, we knocked what 80 or so out yeah um there's still a lot of content out there if you want to go back and listen to some of those retrospectives i think there's some real fun stuff that sits out there too so we wanted to keep a lot of the good stuff out there and and still give you a bunch of what we had but just cleaned it up a little bit and i think that's a good thing yeah, I mean, we, we call it just, you know, cleared out the, the old stuff from the library that nobody's reading. There's, you know, the, the binding's a little gone. It's time to move on and do something else with that. I think what, what you've got is our curated best of. And then, you know, we've got room to build on from there. So lots of fun stuff. Of course, you can keep up with us uh, on all the, the side, our social media. We do appreciate your support and look forward to coming back and talking with you again. So let us know what you think of the show. Uh, if you disagree or agree with our takes, you know, hit us up. We love to converse with fans. If you know Brian and I from the Art of Slaying, the Buffy podcast, you know, we did a lot of that back in the day. And Brian, tell folks about your uh, podcast venture. You've got a, another gig going on. Yeah, I do a lot of vinyl record collecting these days. And so I have a podcast where I tend to stick to vinyl topics. Um, so it's called Brian's Vinyl Records. You can find it on iTunes everywhere. Just search Brian's Vinyl Records. I talk, I talk vinyl items and everything like that. Music related stuff. You and I do a series that we're starting called Tracks where we take an album and look at every song on there. I think that's a fun thing. So that's out there. You can find that easily enough. All the social medias are the same. Brian's Vinyl Records. You can find it easily, easily enough there. Absolutely, folks. Check out Brian's Final Records. And again, keep up with us on Filmstrip. And we'll be back again soon with another episode. Until next time, for Brian, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrip.com. Please leave us a positive review and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.